You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Hey, church family, so glad to be with you today. This week in Tennessee, the stay-at-home orders are beginning to lift and things will begin to open back up a little bit. And I know many of you are gonna be getting out of the house and some of you are really excited. Some of you might be a little hesitant, uh, but I know it is time for us to get back to work. Our plan as a church moving forward for Sunday mornings is to remain online for the foreseeable future. I give a full explanation for what we're doing and why we're doing it on a video that you can check out by visiting our website today. So we'll gather online for Sunday mornings, but we are encouraging you to get in a summer group. Summer groups will meet for six weeks, uh, mostly men's and women's groups. Uh, they're, they're gonna be four to five people in a group and, and we wanna keep them small, which means we're gonna need more leaders, but you can meet in your backyard at a coffee shop in your home. You can do Zoom calls still if you want to. But the main thing is that we stay connected and we grow during this time. If you're in a small group, divide up and get ready uh, to meet. We'll need co-leaders, so step up if you're a co-leader. If you're not in a group, but would like to jump in a summer group, you can visit our website today and uh, sign up and we will help you get connected. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter three. We're we're in a series called Simply Jesus and we're studying the book of Galatians and we wanna uncover the simplicity of the gospel. You know, a lot of people are, are really ready to get out of the house and get back to work. And I'm sure many of you are ready for it. And I think it's important that everyone safely gets back to work so that the economy can, can get going again and we can get our lives back essentially. But obviously, one of the main reasons why we work is so that we can provide for our families and for ourselves. And so uh, when it comes to a job, we work, we get credit, and we take care of our family. Uh, This is important for us. Work is a very precious thing for you and I. It, It validates who we are and what we do. We work, we get credit. In other words, we get a paycheck and then we take care of our families. And when we aren't able to work, something inside of us starts to go crazy. And if the government didn't start lifting the stay at home order, I believe we would have seen a lot more protest and a lot more angry people. Uh, Working to provide for yourself is really a very basic fundamental human desire. And what's interesting about our human nature is that that concept sticks with us when we approach God. You've heard people talk about heaven and they say, man, I hope I get to go to heaven one day. I'll just try to do my very best and hope it's good enough for God to kind of let me in. If you study every single world religion, they basically teach live this way, do this work, accomplish this kind of morality, and God is going to let you into heaven. And so here's what we do. We take this job mentality, work, credit, uh, provide for our families. And that moves into how we articulate and think about faith. And so in our faith, when it comes to God, we work, we get credit, we take care of our eternity. And that mentality is in a lot of people all over the world today. But that's not what the gospel teaches us. In fact, in this series, we are learning that God wants us to know that you and I are actually saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. And if we are saved by God's grace, 
then all the credit for our salvation goes to God because he does the saving. It's his work, it's his grace, it's not my work. But listen to this, in our very nature, we want to work for it because we want some of the credit. We like the idea of working and and being rewarded. It's a very American way of thinking. Uh, Let me explain it like this. One of the things that staying at home has done for my family is that we're cooking a lot more. And uh, for me, I love to grill. So I've been grilling a lot of food and and cooking some incredible meals, by the way. But one night I decided to cook some food for the family uh, over the charcoal. And so I'm out there, I've got all the spices out. I got all these amazing ingredients and I'm so excited. I'm starving. I can't wait to eat this food. And and, uh, as I'm cooking, you know, the thought hits my head. I'm thinking when I'm finished, my family, they're gonna walk into the kitchen and they're gonna rise up and sing my praises for this majestic bounty of awesomeness, right? I mean, they're gonna be amazed by this food. My kids will say, how in the world could I be so lucky to have a dad like you? And as the aroma is just kind of wafting through the house and I'm bringing the food in. The kids come down and my oldest daughter, Bailey, my firstborn, she walks into the room. I'm so proud. She takes a look at the meal and she says, Dad, do you care if I eat something else? I don't really like this kind of food. And I'm I, and my response is, sure, honey, whatever you would like. But in my mind, I'm thinking, what do you mean you don't like this meal? How in the world could you not want and desire this five-star cuisine? I'm thinking in my head, are you crazy? Did I do something wrong as I raised my daughter? Now, why is this a problem for me? Why does it bother me that she chose to eat frozen chicken nuggets and squirt you know, ketchup all over her plate while we are feasting on this meal. Why can I not let it go? Well, somewhere in my heart, I like to get the credit for my work. I want the glory. I want my children to give me the credit for the food, for the work that I put in for them. So you see, this is human nature. We want the credit for our work. We wanna be validated for our work. Now listen, getting credit at the office is one thing, but when it slits into our view of God, when it comes to our salvation, it's a completely different issue. But we can't turn that instinct on and off whenever we want. And that's one of the reasons it can be so difficult for you to accept God's grace. You know, the Bible says that we're saved by God's grace and not our own works, but we think we need to somehow offer some work for our salvation. Be kind to people, be generous, so that God will perhaps save us. And and if we could actually earn God's love by work, guess what you and I would do? Just like when I cook food for my kids, I would expect appreciation from God. I would wanna pat on my back. If you had anything to do with your salvation, you would say, Look at me, look what I did. God, you saved me, sure, but he saved me because I did something good. You should do something good too and maybe God will save you as well. So if we're saved by grace and not by works, how are we supposed to live? Does this mean we don't need to be kind or generous? You know, if we're saved, just live however you want? Of course not. Paul's answer in Galatians 3 is simple. He says, you're saved by grace So you must live by grace. And that's the hard part. 
That's the tension that you and I live in. I think a lot of you are probably sitting at home and, and you can understand today that God saves us by his grace, but it's really hard for you to live by his grace. And that's exactly where the Galatian churches were struggling. They felt the need to add some behaviors to their faith in an, in an attempt to please God, to make, him, uh, uh, to make God love them more, to make them feel like they're doing something to kind of earn it. Thanks for saving me, Jesus. Now we'll take it from here. And Paul says, you guys are foolish. He's upset with them and his language is really forceful and, and kind of personal. And so let's look at verse one in chapter three here of Galatians. Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul starts in verse one and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. Uh, J.B. Phillips, uh, a Bible translator, he translates this, this, this uh, phrase like this. Oh, dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. <laughs> Paul is saying, come on, guys, are you kidding me? Who in the world has bewitched you like this? Now, the Greek word for bewitched you uh, simply means to give you the, the evil eye or to kind of cast a spell on them and Paul is saying, it's like somebody has simply casted a spell on you to, to kind of trick you into believing this. And he knows that that's not the case, but we do know that anytime there's doctrinal error, we know it's from human ignorance and also demonic forces. The churches in Galatia were facing both. They were foolish and they were under spiritual attack. Now listen, I think right now in America and really all over the world, we're facing both. We're facing ignorance. So many people don't understand the gospel in America, don't receive the gospel, even in the Bible Belt of America. And we're also facing a spiritual attack with this virus. I mean, the enemy wants this virus to isolate you from the church, wants to put you in fear, to get you to doubt God, to depress you, to think nobody cares about you. But listen, we can't let that happen. That's why I love studying the book of Galatians right now, because when we dial into the true gospel, it strengthens our faith and it, and it gives us hope in this uncertain time of what God's grace and his love really means for our life. It also says here that Paul is saying that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now the word comes from an, the advertising world and it was a, a word used to kind of give a public notice, almost like a billboard for us today. And so the point for Paul is that Jesus died publicly for all to see. And Paul is saying the preaching of the gospel has been publicly portrayed to you as well. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't a secret. It's right before your eyes. How can you miss it? Don't be foolish and miss it. You see, on the cross, Jesus gave his life as the once and for all atonement for sin. According to God's standard of justice, justice, sin demanded the death penalty. And Jesus paid for it and he paid it for you. 
by God's mercy, the sacrifice Jesus made was accepted by God as a full payment for your sin. And so God proved that he accepted the sacrifice Jesus made by raising him from the dead. And at this very moment, Jesus is a risen and living savior who is able to grant forgiveness to everyone who believes in him. And that includes you today. Now, the Galatian churches had forgotten all of this. They, they, they thought, yeah, they needed to add their own finishing touches to the cross of Jesus. And I think some of you are making the same mistake. So Paul asked some questions, some rhetorical questions here in verses uh, two and three that we need to wrestle with today. And the first question is this, how did you receive the spirit? Remember, Paul's talking to Christians. So he's reminding them, you know, about their salvation experience. And now, sure, they, they've slipped into, you know, a, a wrong doctrinal mentality, but they are believers in Christ. They've been saved. And he reminds them, how did you receive the Spirit? Did you, in fact, receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, if the Spirit comes by works of the law, then listen, there is something that I have to do to get the Spirit. If I keep the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, if I follow all the rules of the Old Testament law, then God is gonna give me his Spirit. That's what he's saying here. Is, is, is this what's happening for us? So the source of God's blessing then would be me and it would be my spiritual achievements. And listen, that's exactly what our sinful hearts want to believe. It's me grilling food to get praise for my children. We want a salvation to actually work for. We want a method that will guarantee a good spiritual experience with God. And listen, we think if you give me the rules, I'll do them. And, and then I'll expect God to do some things for me. And if God keeps doing his part, I'll keep checking off those boxes. And, and, and doing that, it kind of gives me a sense of security, knowing that all I have to do is check the boxes and God has to bless me. But here's the reality. The spirit is not something you gain. The spirit is something that's given to you. You can't gain the spirit by working and doing X, Y, and Z by living a good life. That's not how God is gonna give you his spirit. He actually gives it to you by his free grace. God's not like TurboTax. Like he's not a program you can run on your computer and check all the boxes and give all the numbers and then see how much money you're gonna get you know, back this year. That's not how it works. The only way to know God is by entering into a trusting relationship with him. And then the indwelling presence of his spirit comes by faith alone. Paul says, how did you get the Holy Spirit? And the answer is that the, the, the answer to the question is you receive the Holy Spirit by faith, not work. In fact, the Spirit has to first enable you to believe the gospel. And then when you hear it, the Spirit enables you to put your faith in Jesus. That's how dependent we are on the Spirit and power of God's grace. Now listen, there are some Christians that will teach that the Spirit comes after you're saved. They call it the second blessing or like the fullness of the Spirit. And they even go so far as to say that the second blessing is evidenced by some, uh, something that's miraculous like speaking in tongues. But clearly what we're reading right here rules that out. It's a false teaching. That's a works-based teaching that says, if you do this, then God will really give you his spirit. But the gift of the Holy Spirit is given fully at the moment of salvation and it's given to you by faith alone. Now here's the second question. 
The second question is, how did or do you finish this salvation? How do you finish it? It began with the Spirit, he said. Are you now trying to perfect it by your work? In other words, by your flesh, he says. So here's, here's the question. Are you trying to perfect the work or do you accept his perfect work? Paul says, you guys have been conned. You've been O's, man. Somebody's lied to you. They've given you the idea that, that you become a Christian by faith, but then you live the Christian life by works. And you've got to keep perfecting your life in order for God to love you and to continue to love you and to stay safe. And Paul says, you've been conned. And it's leading you to become a perfectionist. Now, Anyone out there today watching want to admit that they struggle with being a perfectionist? Maybe throw a hand in the chat room today. Anybody want to just admit, that's me, I struggle with it, I'm trying to be a perfectionist? Listen, if you are a perfectionist, at the core of your heart, there's a deep fear that whispers, you may not be good enough. And that fear drives you to do everything with perfection, even when it comes to pleasing God. You have this inner voice that's always pointing out your mistakes. You're really hard on yourself and you're constantly trying to improve yourself and you're constantly trying to prove that you in fact are good. Because listen, you wanna be good and you want others to think that you're good. And to the perfectionist, uh, it's get it right, get it right, get it right, get it right. That's all that matters. Because if you don't get it right, everyone will know that you messed up and that you're not perhaps good. You live as if God will only be happy with you if you do it right and you do it perfectly. And so if you're a perfectionist, you'll do 10 great things, but one thing that wasn't so great. And what's the, what's the thing that you're gonna focus on? That's right, the one thing that you didn't get right. Why? You want it perfect. And if it's not perfect, it's not good. And that translates into, I'm not good enough. And so I've got to prove myself to the world every single day. Perfectionism destroys your peace. What happens is your relationship to God becomes a burden rather than a blessing. The Christian life becomes frustrating rather than fulfilling. And you feel like, man, I'm just never going to measure up. But God wants you to know, that you don't have to prove it anymore. You never had to prove it because he already proved it for you. He lived the life that you're trying to live, but, but he in fact was perfect and guess what? He did it perfectly. So you have to start letting go of the burden to try to fix everything around you. God didn't intend for you to carry that burden. You don't have to carry it in, in, anymore. In fact, there's no way you could carry it without a breakdown you'll always feel wound up like you don't measure up. And it's time for you to cast that onto Jesus and take a deep breath and say, I'm giving up control. And say, I admit it, God, I never really had it in the first place, but God, you're in control, you are perfect. And so we need a, a moment of, of, of forgiveness and, and, and God, I'm sorry for trying to be you. I, I don't have to prove anything to you, Lord. I, I, I can just live in the freedom that you chose me that you saved me, not because I was good or right, simply because you're a glorious God filled with amazing grace and love for me. And folks, that should bring us joy and lead us to praise God and to live our life for him because of that amazing grace and that amazing love. You don't have to prove it. Deep down, the perfectionist just wants someone to say, you did good, you're good. 
But here's the problem. For the perfectionist, even if you hear that message, you're gonna wish that somebody else said it. <laughs> Thanks for saying it, but really, I, I actually needed to hear it from my dad or I needed to hear it from so-and-so. Or they, they would say that to you and, and, and you would say, ah, you didn't say it exactly the way I wanted to hear it. Here's the reality. No one will be able to satisfy this longing in your heart that runs deep inside of you. Why? Only God can speak that into you. And he does that in and through the gospel. When you rest in the knowledge of the gospel and in the faith that Jesus died for you, as you do that, you're allowed to, to let go of that frustration that you're not measuring up. If you feel this burden to correct all the wrongs in the world, you've got to correct and, and fix all of your kids and fix all of your friends. If you're dissatisfied most days because you're continually trying to improve things, but you're exhausted because that task is never finished, take a deep breath today. Seriously, let's actually do that. Let's take a deep breath everywhere. That everybody that's watching right now, one big, huge breath on the count of three. One, two, three. And now let's let it out. And repeat this. Say, it's not my job to fix the world. Say it. Tell everybody that you're sitting next to. It's not my job to fix the world. You're, you might be with your family. You might look around right now and say, hey, it's not my job to fix my family. <laughs> say, say this. Say this to the, your, your neighbor right now. It's not my job to save the world. See that? Feel that pressure release off of you? Paul says, you were saved by the Spirit of God. Are you now trying to perfect your salvation through your own work? Listen, you can't perfect something that's already perfected. Jesus' death and resurrection is the perfect payment for you to live in freedom and release the chaos of trying to be perfect. Paul says, forget the trap of perfection. It's gonna ruin your life. The Bible says it like this in Hebrews 12. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. It's his job to perfect our faith. Even in our own weaknesses, God is gonna use those weaknesses. He turns them around and he brings good out of them. 2 Corinthians 12 says, God says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen, if you don't get anything else I say, get this. God loves you unconditionally unconditionally. He loves you on your good days. He loves you on your bad days. He loves you when you have a quiet time. He loves you when you don't have a quiet time. He loves you when you mess up. His love is there for you, not based on your behavior. You can't earn it. He loves you even when you don't feel lovable. He loves you even when you can't fix all the problems. What's the point that I'm trying to make here? See, a relationship with God is not work-based it's grace-based. So Christian living is, a, is, is about living by his grace and in his grace, not by your work, not by your performance. You're saved by grace. So you and I must live by grace. See, we gravitate toward rules all the time. We gravitate towards rules in our life because essentially, you believe your performance can increase or decrease God's love for you. But listen, that's conditional love. If your focus is on obeying rules instead of developing relationship, your faith is complicated today. You're frustrated with religion. You're frustrated with God. 
our flesh thinks we can obey the law good enough to get God to love us. And that's where the Galatian churches were getting it all wrong. So Paul goes into an example that that explains what genuine faith actually looks like. And he does that by talking about a man named Abraham. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's look at verse six here in chapter three. Here's what Paul says next. He says, just as Abraham believed God. So Abraham's the example essentially. And he says, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And what Paul does here is genius. Remember, he's talking to Jewish people who are are believing uh, these teachers who are saying, it's cool to have faith in Jesus, uh, but now that you have faith in Jesus, now if you wanna remain in God's favor, you need to live like a Jew. And so Paul's point uh, is that he wants to point their attention to the father of the Jews, which is Abraham. And the Jews, you see, were really, really proud of Abraham. They were really proud of their ancestry. They were proud of uh, of the fact that Abraham was the father of their religion. Now, listen, you get that. You and I get that. That's why Ancestry.com is so popular. You've done your Ancestry.com work, and and you saw that through a a fifth cousin's uncle's brother's aunt, you were related somehow to Abraham Lincoln, and you were pumped about that, right? Right? Uh, my, my claim to fame is that I've got a great uncle that played in the NFL for the Giants and he actually coached the Rams. In fact, if you're ever on Jeopardy and you get this question, he was the youngest head coach in NFL history. Now, if you Google that, the, Google's gonna tell you Lane Kiffin, but it's wrong. Uh, in fact, my uncle, his name was Art Lewis. Look it up. We're proud of that. My dad tells stories about him all the time. I actually never met him. But I'm proud of him. Why? Because we're proud of people in our family who did something unique and special. And this is where the Jewish people were at. They're they're proud of Abraham. So when Paul starts to talk about Abraham here and, and he's connecting it to how Abraham was saved, you know, I can imagine their ears kind of perking up and listening. What what's going on here? See, the Jewish people understood that that God richly blessed Abraham. And the promise he made to Abraham was that his descendants would become a great nation, that they would live in the promised land. They would be blessed by God. And and Paul is saying, Abraham would agree with me about how someone actually is saved and approved by God. Now you gotta remember, Abraham was a Gentile pagan before he met God, uh, before he believed in God. So, So Paul is quoting Genesis 15 and he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the word counted was an accounting term that meant that money was being received and counted as payment towards something else. And so when it says God credits Abraham's faith as righteousness, here's what it means. It means that God is treating Abraham as if he were living a righteous life. He wasn't perfectly righteous, but God justified him, made him right because of faith. What he's trying to explain was that when we are justified by God, when we are loved and accepted by God, we are at the same time sinful and imperfect people. That's in Christ, that's how God justifies us. So here's the third question that we wanna answer today. How do you have faith like Abraham? 
And the answer is simple. Saving faith is believing the gospel. In verse six, it says that Abraham believed God. He believed the gospel message that God preached to him. And it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. It's not enough to simply believe in God. James chapter two, verse 19 says, even demons believe in God. Paul is saying Abraham believed God, period, which meant that he trusted what God said would actually save him. See, there's a difference in acknowledging that God exists and actually believing his gospel promise. So the question that you wanna wrestle with today is are you truly trusting God today? Are you trusting the promise that Jesus's death and resurrection offers you a relationship with God and the gift of the Holy Spirit and that there's nothing for you to do but have faith in that promise? See, that's where we're at, is saving faith, is simply believing the gospel. Secondly here, saving faith is trusting God's provision and not our performance. Think about the story of Abraham. He was childless with a barren wife. They could not have children, but God promised that he would have a countless descendants. He believed God's promise and God would have to do a miracle that didn't depend on Abraham's ability at all. So Abraham believed that promise and God actually did it. In verse seven, it says essentially, who are the sons of Abraham then? You know, what, what matters? Is it being, you know, a physical descendant of Abraham or is it something different? Is it, is it about our spiritual birth and spiritual connection to Abraham? Do you have faith like Abraham had? So the question I ask is like, how did, how did he get saved? And how did people in the Old Testament, you know, get to go to heaven? And, and this is it, like faith in God's promise. That's it. That, that's how Abraham you know, was able to enjoy a relationship with God. He had faith in the promise that God gave to him. What does it take for a person to go to heaven today? Faith in God's promise and his promise is the gospel. God said, I'm gonna bless you, Abraham, with a promise. I'm gonna send the Messiah through your descendants and he's gonna bless all nations through you. And so what did Abraham do? He didn't do anything. He said, I trust you, God. <laughs> and as a result of that, God saves him, blesses him, and yes, through his line, sends the Messiah that does impact the entire world. So this saving faith means that we're trusting God's provision, his promise, not our performance. And when we do that, verse 28 speaks power in our life. Verse 28 of the same chapter. Once we have faith in Jesus, it says, now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, which means we inherit that promise. Heirs according to the promise, which means we are heirs of the promise that God gave, uh, gave to Abraham, which is yes, salvation here, the promise of the Holy Spirit, yes, and a future home in heaven. So here, here's essentially what saving faith does. Saving faith unites us. What this means is that all the barriers that separate people in the world come down in Christ. Cultural barriers are shattered like Jew and Gentile, black and white. Status barriers like I'm a slave, I'm, I'm free, I'm rich, I'm poor are shattered. Gender barriers like male, female. The power of the gospel changes our attitude toward everything in life. And Paul wants us to bring down all those barriers in God's church. Think about it. Wouldn't it be amazing 
if you put your faith in Christ today and you trusted God's promise to save you? Wouldn't it be amazing to stop trying to work for it and to prove you're good enough and simply receive the gift of forgiveness and grace and live by grace, rest in his work? Wouldn't it be amazing if you put your faith in Christ today and you trusted God's promise to save you? Wouldn't it be amazing to stop trying to work for it and prove you're good enough and simply receive the gift of forgiveness and grace and rest in his work, live by his grace? Wouldn't it be amazing for you to break down the barriers that are around you and recognize that in Christ we are united, we are one and receive this message that unites us When everyone else is fighting as Christians, we're uniting. Wouldn't that be amazing? You see, we're all equal at the cross and and that's where we stand today. Every single one of us brings sin before God. Every single one of us imperfect, broken, messed up, hurting people. And, 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 And at the foot of the cross, we are on equal ground because we come to him in the same manner as sinners. And we simply say, God, forgive me come into my life, save me. And, and, and when he saves us, we are changed, we're transformed. And there's some people watching today that need to experience this transforming power known as the gospel. And I wanna encourage you, if you're at home, wherever you're at, if you wanna give your life to Jesus, just simply bow your head right now and just simply say this as a message, as a prayer to God. And just simply say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. Say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life today. Save me today. And I am giving you my life. And pray that in the name of Jesus, amen. Folks, if you prayed that prayer, we wanna help you. So I encourage you to text the number that is shown on the bottom of the screen right now and let us know who you are so that we can help you, encourage you, and bless you today. Today, we're actually gonna close with a song. So before you run off and grab another cup of coffee or hit the restrooms, I wanna stay kind of in this moment. Um, When the song comes on, like this is something that's gonna reinforce this message. and, And during the song, I want you to listen to the words. And let's rest in the power of God's promise to us today. Because here's the reality. Some of you are, are working your tail off and, 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 and you're working so hard to be perfect and to be good and you're exhausted and you're trying to prove yourself and you're trying to perfect it. And God wants you to know today, listen, that motivation to know that you are good is, 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 a, is a fear that, that is somewhere in your heart and he wants to resolve that tension in your life today because he says, I'm good enough. Rest in my work. And I pray that this song helps you do it. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.